you. Please sit down. A word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our minds be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Theory and practice. Mm. Where's Nick going with that? Well, I expect that most of you here today know that these days there are two driving tests, the theory and the practical. Now, either you know this because you needed to take both of those tests yourself, or someone maybe in your family close to you has had to take both tests, or, well, you're like me. You're just that little bit more mature, we'll go with that, that little bit more mature, and you only had to take one test. I only took one test. But our son Thomas, who is here today, I did warn him I was going to name him over there, uh, he had to take both of them. He took his theory test and passed that a little while ago, and two weeks weeks ago today, he passed his practical. Yay! So, why not, Thomas? Very good. Um, So what's the difference? Why two tests? Well, the clue's in the name, isn't it? The theory part gets you to learn all of the rules and regulations that are needed to be safe driving a car on the road, while the practical test shows the examiner that you can apply all that textbook stuff to the real-life, maybe surprising situations that you will encounter in day-to-day driving. So it's probably not a surprise to those of you that know me that I'm talking about cars. But why driving tests? Well, it struck me that there are some parallels between what goes on with new drivers as they pass that initial theory test and then move on into the rest of their driving life, their driving time on the road, and that of the life of a Christian. From that moment when we first decide to follow Christ and we learn the basics, the outline of the Christian faith, to then applying that teaching and that understanding to the rest of our lives, where unexpected things do happen, don't they? So let me explain. Let me tell you a little bit more about the way I'm thinking. So did you notice what we heard in that reading from Isaiah that was read for us, that Ruth read for us. Well, it seems there that the people being addressed, well, they're genuinely surprised that they don't have God's favour. Verse 2 says, For day after day they seek, this is Isaiah speaking, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. So outwardly, they're keen to hear from God and think that they're in step with him. But the reading goes on as they express their frustration because verse 3 says, Why have we fasted and you've not seen it? 
Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? Well, the crux of these verses is that the people seem to be happy to sort of tick the right boxes by outwardly performing certain actions. In their case, in this reading, fasting, being humble, as per their understanding of their religious life at the time. But they expect that to be enough. Whereas God and Isaiah are clear that the outward actions need to have an inward effect. Knowing the right thing to do in order to appear devout and righteous is one thing. But like driving, what actually matters in the end is not just the theory, but the practical application of those guidelines in daily life. And in Christian terms, this means the changing of our hearts and of our minds and of our souls to become more godly in our everyday actions, rather than saying or even doing the right thing for appearance sake or even out of a sense of duty, but then not backing it up in those moments when we think that our Christian brothers and sisters, or even God, may not be looking as closely. So I've got a question for us here this morning. What about us? How do you think Spurgeon's compares to the people that Isaiah was talking to? How truly godly and righteous are our hearts as we work out our faith in the nitty-gritty of our day-to-day lives? Is there room for improvement? Well, let's just go back to that passage from Isaiah for a moment and see what their inconsistency looked like. From the second part of verse 3 through to 7, let me just reread what we heard. So they, they're doing the fasting, they're doing the outward stuff, the, the, you know, the, the, the looking good stuff. They're doing that, yet, yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife, in striking each other with wicked fists. It's not going well. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed, for lying in sackcloth and ashes? More outward stuff. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see them, the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. So it's very clear, isn't it, from this, that the people are happy enough to go through the motions of what they understand to be the godly behaviour they should be doing. But beyond that, they don't seem to get it. They don't seem to understand that the whole point of carrying out the spiritual disciplines that they seem to know so well is to grow in their faith 
and to change their behaviour to match. And not just on the Sabbath or when observing something like a fast, but all the time. In contrast, the final verses of the passage go on to explain the fantastic outcome of allowing ourselves to be changed through living out what we find in Scripture. Verses 8 and 9, then, we, we like a then in Scripture, don't we? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Well, that sounds a bit more like the sort of relationship with God that we all want, doesn't it? But are you thinking, maybe, are you thinking at this point, well, that sounds really great, but surely living as though all of our thoughts, and I've underlined all here, all of our thoughts and our deeds and our motivations, even the private ones, well, living as as though all of those matter to God, well, isn't that hard? Isn't that difficult? Are we not setting ourselves quite an impossible task? Well, let's just think quickly about that other reading that we heard. There's good news there. It's another portion of scripture that was identified by the the lectionary for our attention today. And therefore, yeah, it's going to help us as we wrestle with this. So this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. But let's take it as though he's writing to us, the church at Spurgeon's, Bletchley. Let me just read you the first few verses again. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but, but, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Left to our own devices and living in our own strength, we would indeed probably fail to grow to greater spiritual depth and maturity maturity, or righteousness, as uh, the word the Bible uses. But just as Paul was made strong in the Holy Spirit, so can we be. The Spirit will comfort, equip, guide and change us to be more godly, more righteous, if only we let him. What I hope you're picking up from this message this morning is that although the various practices we read about in scripture and learn about in church, well they are important to observe and follow. Things like fasting as we've heard, but prayer, Bible study, service, confession, worship, all of those things like the rules and regulations in the highway code that we learn for our driving theory test they're not quite enough on their own if they're just a box that we tick, an exam that we pass. 
If we only pray because somebody's listening, if we only come to church because it looks good, or out of a sense of duty, or we want to meet our friends, well, it's not quite enough. These things need to be combined with an inward change and a growth as we practice them. As I was writing this bit, I was reminded of something in in my history, and I'm not going to put Mark or anybody else on the spot, but it reminded me of the Boys' Brigade object. Given a bit of space, I'm sure that us old BB members could remember the object, but I'll, I'll read it for you. The BB object, or was certainly in my day, the advancement of Christ's kingdom among boys and the promotion of habits of obedience, reverence, discipline, self-respect, and all that tends towards a true Christian manliness. Looks like it's the same because Mark was mouthing along. The promotion of habits of. See, I quite like that. I like the idea that good Christian behaviour, some of those things we've been thinking about, well, they, they can become a habit as we practice them more and more. And they can start to change us from the inside out. Don't panic. I'm just going to refer to that other bit of scripture that the lectionary referred to. But it'll be quick. Matthew 5 was the other passage. Um, And that's not Matthew 5. That's Matthew 5. Let me just read you just a couple of verses from Matthew 5 and from verse 13. Really familiar verses. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount, that, uh, that reading. I thought, well, I can't, can't miss including a bit of that. One of the most useful and instructive bits of scripture that, that we've been given. So that first part, salt and light, well, that's an underlining, more emphasis to what we've already been thinking about in respect of living out those spiritual disciplines. It's clear that we're called not just to practice our faith in private or even just at church, but we are to allow it to grow and change us, to let it spread into every aspect of our daily lives, Being salt and light in a world that so badly needs the flavour and illumination of Jesus now, just as it did when Jesus first spoke the words. And then there's that second section, the fulfilment of the law. 
bit harder to understand. But to me, it reinforces the idea that we need both theory and practice to be healthy, growing Christians. While today we live out our faith in a time, well, it's after Jesus and all of his teaching. So our understanding of the law, the rules, as they were set out in the Old Testament, that's different to the people that we read about in the Old Testament. But from this passage, it's clear that Jesus is clearly not ready to sweep it all away and ignore the guidance for righteous living that the Old Testament gives us. You might remember, audience participation, you might remember that Kevin often gave us two handrails of faith, two headline instructions from Jesus to help keep us on the right path. Who's going to shout them at me? I always used to... I I remembered because he, he called them handrails, and that's stuck in my small brain. He used to say, these are really important. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And they are good. They are great handrails. They are a good model for our day-to-day Christian living. But they don't, on their own, represent the full richness of a mature and righteous faith. And I don't think Kevin ever suggested they did either, for the record. All of the other Christian disciplines, the fasting, Bible study, prayer, service, confession, you look on in many, many places, and that list, you know, there's not a definitive list, but those, those things are on most of them, most of the versions of the list. If those things are followed obediently and sincerely, not just in a way that's ticking a box, not just in a way that's for show, well, they will give a depth and a strength to our faith which will make all the difference. They will help equip us for all those unexpected events that we encounter on the road of life. Which brings us back to the beginning, doesn't it? So it must be time to stop. The road of life, the road out there when we're driving, theory and practice, we need both. We need both to become a good driver And we need both to become a good Christian. So may God bless each of us as we try and apply what we've heard and what we've learned together today. Amen.